If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as He is. Those are the words of A. W. Tozer. Hi, I'm Doug Hooley, and what you're listening to right now is the Called Out Cafe podcast. This is episode number 10 in the series titled, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. Ask former President Bill Clinton, remember him, what the meaning of the word is, is. At the very root of either purposeful or unintended deception can be changing the meaning of words that should be simply understood. Purposeful or not, human language is living and ever-changing. You don't believe me? Well, see if you understand the following sentence. This is written in Old English. Say, Risa ver timbrod his hus offerstan. Well, that text is taken from the parable found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Uh, So is that a giveaway? (laughs) I guess if you know your scripture. But this sentence translates into this. The wise man built his house on stone. Once again, se visa ver timbrod his hus offerstan. Drastic difference, you know, over the course of like 500 years. Well, the same language though, right? English. Well, there are a few extremely important words that are used in the New Testament of the Bible, and they're used many times. Those words are misunderstood today because of how they are used and understood every day in our modern culture. Misinterpreting the meanings of words can lead to misinterpreting Scripture. As I'm going to demonstrate, this can lead to false doctrines and false gods. To combat deception, to properly understand what the Bible is saying, and to understand how absurd some of the erroneous beliefs are that are based on those words, it's extremely important to nail down their biblical definitions. How important are these following three words? You tell me. Belief. Faith. Hope. Well, let's look at belief first. We've established the difference between relative truth and authentic truth in past podcasts. If you didn't listen to those, please go back and listen to those. Belief is acceptance or confidence that something is true, whether it is true or not. For a time in their lives, many children believe there is a man that lives at the North Pole named Santa. Through more sophisticated reasoning, many adults also believe in things that are not true, like You only use 10% of your brain, or lightning never strikes in the same place twice, or hair and nails continue to grow after you die, or brown eggs are better for you than white. I, you know, this is awfully controversial here, and I hate to say it, and maybe you're just going to shut me off after this, but these statements (laughs) have all been proven to be false. And believing in these things does not make them any truer. Here's the thing that's misunderstood about biblical belief. The word belief should be taken to mean the same thing as the word faith. 
In the New Testament, there is no difference in meaning between these two words. Both English words come from one Greek word. That's pistis. As we're going to see, Scripture itself defines what biblical pistis, you know, faith or belief, is. But it's also important to know what it meant in the first century in the Middle East. Pistis and the different forms it's used in means to have a conviction of truth or to be firmly persuaded that something is true. When used to describe a person, pistos means they are trusty or faithful. They're a person you can rely on or count on and believe in. Jesus is said to be pistos, faithful and true. It says that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Universally, pistos can also refer to the substance of what Christians believe in. For example, the Christian faith is the Christian pistos. One Greek word, pistis, meaning the same thing but translated into two different English words, faith and belief. Today, Faith and belief are often used to describe two very different things. I'll talk about this more later. For now, even if you don't go any further in these podcasts, your paradigm will begin to shift if you only take the action of whenever you come across the word faith in the New Testament, you insert the word belief in its place. There's no more important operative word in the Bible than faith or belief. One's eternal status rests on what's described in this word, pistis. One is either living according to the law, is condemned and destined for eternal damnation, or they're living by faith, they're living by pistis, or according to their belief in Jesus, and they're considered righteous and destined for eternal life. Misunderstanding what faith is can lead to faith becoming just another law-based work. Belief based on things that are not true can get you into a lot of trouble. So it's necessary to differentiate between erroneous belief and authentic belief. Authentic belief is a belief that completely agrees or lines up with or is based only on authentic truth. Believing in the one true God is an authentic belief. Properly interpreting scripture so that I understand the intended meaning of the author of that scripture and then accepting what that scripture says to be completely true and then appropriately reacting to that truth is an authentic belief. Appropriately reacting to an authentic belief is what some would call works. Well, believing in something that does not agree with authentic truth is a belief that's held in error. An erroneous, wrong, or false belief is called a misbelief. Believing in a doctrine that's based on faulty interpretation of Scripture is a misbelief. It may be a belief that inspires one to do good or engage in immoral behavior, but it's not a belief based on the reality of what the Scripture says. Is there a problem with doing what seems to be good for the wrong reasons? 
Well, that depends on what one's motivations are and whatever they're doing is actually an attempt to please a false god. It's interesting that the word misbelief is no longer widely used today. This may be because in the relative truth, postmodern world we live in, few are willing to call anything a misbelief in fear of being labeled as intolerant, as well as many other things. Heresy is a term used within the church to describe a belief, a doctrine, or opinion that's contrary to any orthodox church dogma. One would like to think that anything pertaining to God other than the authentic truth would be considered heresy. However, authentic truth is not subject to the principles of majority rules, which is part of what determines what teaching is orthodox. Authentic truth is also no respecter of deceit that has been accepted and put into practice within the church. Nor is it a respecter of sentimental or nostalgic traditions of humans where they detract from the authentic truth. The accepted definition of heresy means that anything in conflict with current accepted teaching in the church, which is the majority teaching, is wrong. The Apostle Paul was accused of speaking heresy. Many beliefs which are now common and considered orthodox were once considered heresy. That includes the practice of baptizing adults after they've decided to follow Jesus, rather than baptizing everyone as babies. Real, authentic belief is based on a foundation of what we know to be true. It's based on evidence. You might be familiar with this uh, verse I'm going to read here, which has been used to define what faith is. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith, pistis, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Well, this verse is rarely understood fully or correctly. It contributes to the entire passage that surrounds it and isn't meant to stand on its own. However, considering the surrounding passage, I am confident that this verse on its own provides solid definitions of the words faith, or belief, and hope. It seems like when people read this verse, they focus in on the squishy words, like hope and things not seen. Hope? Today, isn't having hope like making a wish? <laughs> like, I hope I win the lottery someday. Things not seen. How can we know about things we can't see or experience or even prove the existence of? These are squishy words, squishy phrases. Faith, then, must be like some mystical confidence or desire we have and that something will come true. We think, well, if it's in the Bible, it must be true. Lord, give me faith to believe this. Biblically, since faith and belief are from the same word, this is like saying, Lord, give me belief so I may believe. This squishy definition of faith is the opposite of what Hebrews 11.1 1 is telling us. To work towards the real definition, since today the word faith normally suggests something other than what it means in the Bible, let's swap out the word faith 
for belief. Let's read that again now, Hebrews 11.1. Now, belief is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Next, notice this. There are two very non-squishy things that make up authentic belief. Substance and evidence. Substance is translated from the Greek word hypostasis. It's a compound word made up of two different words translated as hupo and histemi. By itself, hupo generally means under. Histemi is where we get the word stasis from in English, meaning a period or state of inactivity or equilibrium. Histemi is translated in the Bible as words that generally means to hold up or stand or stay. Put the two Greek words together and hypostasis becomes a word that, according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, represents a substructure or something that has a foundation, something that's firm, that which has actual existence. It speaks of something that has substance or is a real being. In Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is said to be the divinely expressed hypostasis of God. It doesn't get any more real or substantive than Jesus. Think of hypostasis as representing a concrete foundation or real substance that allows you to be confident, established, and unmovable. With that in mind, let's put this English definition to work in understanding Hebrews 11.1 as I again update it with the meaning of substance or hypostasis. Here it is. Now, belief is the concrete, real substance which provides the foundation of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There is nothing squishy about biblical belief. Now let's talk about hope. I hope it won't rain tomorrow, said a woman living in a tropical rainforest. (laughs) I hope I win the lottery sighs the man working 20 hours of overtime per week and still falling behind in his bills. In response to being asked by his mother if he'll be able to visit her at Christmas, the man, who serves in the special forces in Iraq, responds, I hope so, Mom. I just never know. Today, the word hope can mean little more than making a wish. It's an expression of one's desire for a certain future outcome. The desire may or may not have any basis for having confidence that what they're hoping for will become reality. Merriam-Webster says, hope is to cherish a desire with anticipation, to want something to happen or to be true. That is far from the biblical definition of hope. The Greek word translated as hope is elpis. It means to have a confident expectation and assurance that something is going to happen. The same word is sometimes translated as trust in the King James Version of the Bible. Elpis is always used in conjunction with things that authentic children of God can count on in the New Testament. Ultimately, Jesus is at the center of all hope or elpis. The opening of 1 Timothy says this, 
Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. There's a different word that's used for wish in the New Testament. Its definition fits closely with today's definition of wish and modern meaning of hope. That word's associated with prayer and expressing one's desires to God. There's no confident expectation associated with wishing as there is with biblical hope. Now, with the biblical definition of hope in mind, let's take another run at translating Hebrews 11.1. Here we go. Now, belief is the concrete, real substance which provides the foundation of things we have assurance and confident expectation of, the evidence of things not seen. The word evidence is a pretty good translation of the Greek word elegos, but proof is a better one. In a court of law, much evidence can work together to prove a case. Having elegos means the case has been proven. Thayer's Greek lexicon says elegos is a proof that by which a thing is proved or tested. Dr. Jack Crabtree has said, quote, It's like having a title deed in hand to prove one owns a piece of real estate, unquote. With this in mind, let's make one final modification to the translation of Hebrews 11.1. Here we go. Now, belief is the concrete, real substance which provides the foundation of things we have assurance and confident expectation of. It's the tested proof of things not seen. Authentic belief sounds much closer to the science and evidence-based end of the spectrum than the squishy, mystical feelings end of the spectrum. Authentic belief is based on real substance, things we have assurance of and are tested and proven. But what's the source of this foundation, real substance, and tested proof? Well, another passage of Scripture provides us with more of the mechanics behind belief. In Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 10, Paul expresses his concern for people of the Jewish faith that they have rejected salvation. Paul, within chapter 10, informs the reader that there is no distinction between Jews and anyone else who calls upon God. Because of this statement and others within that chapter, we know that the principles Paul speaks of in that passage regarding faith or belief apply to everyone. That passage focuses on the belief which is required for salvation. Biblical belief is complex and cannot be summed up in one Bible verse. However, what I'm going to read you here really concisely sums up much of what's found elsewhere. This is Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Again, to fully appreciate what this scripture is saying, we need to take a look at a couple of things in the original Greek. You already know that faith is the same thing as belief. But did you know that the Greek word for hearing, or akuo, can also mean 
understanding. Akuo means to use the faculty of hearing to perceive, consider, and understand what has been said. It's to give ear to teaching and learn. Finally, it's to yield to and obey the teaching. That's far more than simply hearing the sound of Scripture being read. It's gaining knowledge and understanding of the Scripture and taking it to heart. Based on this, Romans 10.17 is better understood by translating it in the following way. This is my translation. So, then belief comes out of perceiving, understanding, and yielding to the Word of God. Our retranslation doesn't stop here. Most translations end Romans 10.17 with the phrase, the Word of God. Well, it is true that the Messiah, Jesus, is God. However, the word translated as God in this verse comes from the Greek Christos, which more appropriately translates as Christ or the Messiah. So regarding a belief that pertains to salvation, no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, it's the words or utterances or sayings of Jesus, the Messiah, that you're to listen to, understand, and yield to. I add in Jesus' name in this following final version of Romans 10.17 translations only for clarification, since the identity of the Christ or the Messiah is obvious. But here's Romans 10.17 again, my translation, uh, final time. So, then belief comes out of perceiving, yielding to, and understanding the words of Jesus, the Messiah. You get that? How much more complicated that is, or more explanatory than the original. The divine plan, the Logos, and God, the planner, also Logos, have always been according to John 1.1. Jesus, the Messiah, is the divine expression of God, the Logos, the planner, in human form. Certainly, the truth contained in all the Bible, not just the words of Jesus found in red print, are all a part of the divine expression of God and His plan. Learning, understanding, and yielding to, akuo, to those words throughout the Bible is essential to having authentic belief. The authentic truth of the gospel is present for all to see and believe in. However, one may stare at it for decades and not see it. Just like doing good works or attempting to act like a Christian, one may not study their way into the kingdom of God. Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith or belief, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Any effort that a person puts forward, mental or physical, good or bad, is considered a work. Studying Scripture is a work. This passage in Ephesians tells us clearly that there is nothing one can do on their own, apart from God to gain salvation, and that no one is capable of belief that leads to salvation apart from Him. 
the ability to believe in Jesus and be saved by him is a gift of God. Now, of course, he can use works and studying, but it is only by his efforts. It's only the Holy Spirit that points out to everyone the sin that's in their life and what righteousness is and the fact that there will be a judgment in the future. It's the Holy Spirit, therefore, that points out the need of and the way to salvation. The Holy Spirit is called the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth. He's called that by Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that advocates for Jesus and testifies as to the authentic truth contained in Scripture. Whether one accepts or rejects that truth, well, that's what determines who will believe in and receive Jesus as their Savior. And according to Scripture, depends on what God has predestined. Well, let's talk about faith a little bit more. As I said earlier, the Bible uses one word with one meaning for the two English words, faith and belief. Understanding that the two words only have one meaning, as used in the Bible, has some incredible ramifications. To understand the significance, we need to parse out the differences of the two words as they're used today, especially in Christian circles. Belief is thought of as a kind of an on-off switch, binary. You decide to either believe something or you don't. Is it true or is it false? Is someone guilty or are they not guilty? In computer programming terms, it's a one or a zero. Can I base my life on it or can I not? Our modern understanding of faith tends to take on a more mystical meaning, like the Force in Star Wars. Maybe you can imagine Jedi Master Yoda saying, Oh, the faith is strong with this one. <laughs> Sorry. Faith has taken on a meaning with us today that has a quantity associated with it. If you have more faith, you can do more. Jesus said in Matthew seventeen twenty, If you have the faith of a tiny mustard seed you can move a mountain. Modern faith seems to pick up where belief leaves off. I heard this in the barbershop a while back. Quote, If you can't believe it, you just need to have faith. Unquote. In other words, if you can't believe something because you don't have enough information, or you don't understand it, or trust the information you've been given, or it doesn't make any sense to you right now. You should go ahead against your own wisdom, logic, and judgment and pretend you believe it anyway. Usually, this theory says that the confidence in what you pretend to believe in will miraculously follow. It could be our modern view of faith is associated with how sure or confident we are about something. For example, I'm pretty sure I'll be able to make it on time, does not convey as much faith as I definitely will be there on time. Perhaps desire has something to do with it. You can have whatever your heart desires if you have enough faith. Whereas belief seems to exist in our brain, faith seems to represent what's in our hearts. 
Faith is like some spiritual muscle <laughs> that can cause things to happen. Modern faith may be looked at as a thought process in which one summons up feelings to overcome their doubt-based reasoning. A coach going into a locker room at halftime with his or her team that's really losing badly will try and appeal to them to overcome their doubt and convince them that they can still win the game. The coach will attempt to build their confidence or their faith. If they'll only ignore what they perceive the odds and circumstances to be and want to win the game bad enough, the game is theirs to win by faith. Emotions will well up inside them, triggering the release of both endorphins and winning attitudes. Here's one Christian author's formula he used to try and separate out what he believes to be the difference between belief and faith. This formula goes like this. It's faith equals belief plus action plus confidence. So those three things, belief, action, and confidence equals faith. This author cited James chapter 2 verse 17, which says, faith without works is dead meaning that true faith requires action. Faith without action would only be a belief. The author went on to cite modern English translations of the word faith. The fatal problem with this formula is we need to understand the first century Greek use of the, the word and not our 21st century one. Then translate that meaning into the best fitting word or words in modern English. We need to desperately avoid doing the opposite, inserting our modern definitions into Scripture. Every modern case to be made for faith and belief to mean two different things is based on modern definitions of those words. I have yet to hear a purely biblical argument for separately defining the two words. I don't dispute that the meaning of the words and how they are used today are different. Faith clearly is used differently than belief. However, that has little to do with how first century authors of the Bible used the one Greek word. Belief and faith simply mean the same thing as used in the Bible. Is faith without works dead? Then belief without works is dead. If faith comes by hearing, then belief comes by hearing. If one has faith of a mustard seed, then they have belief of a mustard seed. If someone in the faith hall of fame, mentioned in the book of Hebrews, did something through faith, then they did something through belief. Why is there such resistance today to see the Greek word pistos, which has been translated into English as both faith and belief, as only having one meaning? That's because the word faith has taken on a huge life of its own. There are way too many accepted, deep-rooted, modern teachings that depend on two different definitions of the word. Modern faith has taken on its own life and has become a multi-billion dollar industry. The numbers speak for themselves as to how big the faith industry is in the United States. Billions of dollars each year are given to religious organizations. $122.94 billion in 2016 in the United States alone. That's about 
6.66% of the gross domestic product of the U.S. No doubt, some of that money was given with the purest of intentions, but much of it was given in faith that God would honor and reward the giver. The top proponent of the modern word faith movement is Kenneth Copeland. He's reported to be worth over $1.2 billion. He didn't just speak that money into existence. People sent it to him. And people longing to understand faith, like Jedi Christian Master Copeland, are buying books written by a plethora of other Jedi Christian Masters. Type in faith in the book section of Amazon.com. You're going to come up with, when I checked it, 206,162 different results. The, quote, word faith, unquote, or faith movement has deep roots in the U.S. going back to the beginning of the last century. E.W. Kenyon and Kenneth Hagin Sr. are considered to be the fathers of the word faith movement. This movement is worldwide and teaches that Christians can access the power of God, putting their faith into action through the speech they use. Does that sound a little mystical and on the magical side of things? It's no coincidence that one of Ken Copeland's books on the subject is titled The Force of Faith. Word faith teaching is popular among televangelists, but it's found everywhere in the Christian world. The teaching says that the work that Jesus accomplished when he was here on earth included providing for a believer's health and prosperity. The similarities between what they teach in some cases with the force of Star Wars is eerie. This is an excerpt from an article written by Hank Hendegraaff and Erwin M. DeCastro of the Christian Research Institute concerning Kenneth Copeland's teaching. According to this article, this is what Kenneth Copeland teaches. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's worth it. Faith is a power force, he claims. It's a tangible force. It's a conductive force. Moreover, it's a spiritual force. It is substance. Faith has the ability to affect natural substance. As the force of gravity makes the laws of gravity work, this force of faith makes the laws of the spirit world function. Copeland affirms that God cannot do anything for you apart from or separate from faith. For faith is God's source of power. Moreover, everything that you're able to see or touch, anything that you can feel, anything that's perceptive to the five physical senses, was originally the faith of God and was born in the substance of God's faith. In other words, faith was the raw material substance that the Spirit of God used to form the universe. Copeland adds that God used words when he created the heavens and the earth. Each time God spoke, he released his faith, the creative power to bring his words to pass. For words are spiritual containers, and the force of faith is released by words. 
In the 2017 Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi, Jedi Master Luke Skywalker asks his student, Rey, to sit down cross-legged on a rock and close her eyes. He asks her what she sees. She says she sees the island that they're on. And then, quote, Life, death, and decay that feeds new life. Warmth, cold, peace, violence, unquote. Then Skywalker asks her, and between it all, her answer, balance and energy, a force. Luke's final question to her, and inside you? Ray's response, inside me, that same force. Just like the force in Star Wars, Copeland's version of faith is something that can be used as a tangible, substantive energy or power or force to manipulate physical matter. God was the archetype practitioner of using faith in this way when he spoke the world into existence. According to Copeland, once a person is spiritually reborn, their new spirit, sharing the same characteristics as God, has the same ability to manipulate the physical realm by speaking in faith. Faith being the force that is contained in words. What Copeland is promoting is nothing less than two of the works of the flesh mentioned in Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 to 20. That's known as idolatry and sorcery. He's taken these pagan practices and turned them into something many now think of as a part of Christianity. Practitioners of the word faith principles are taught to memorize key verses in the Bible and speak them at appropriate times, as if they're reciting magical incantations. After all, there are no greater spiritual container words than God's own words found in the Bible. How far off is Copeland's usage of the word faith from the definition of pistis we've already talked about? Of course, Copeland is possibly the highest Christian Jedi master alive today, at least one of the highest paid. And his words may sound a little out there or extreme to some, but more subtle versions of these teachings are pervasive in the church today. Virtually anyone who decides to become a Christian because they believe by doing so, something mystical will happen in this life that will cause their problems to be miraculously solved, is practicing a form of the word faith teaching. This teaching is so irresistible because it appeals to anyone who could use more money or has health problems or loves someone who has health problems or needs more money. (laughs) Yet, Every Christian I have ever heard of died of their last physical ailment and didn't take a nickel with them to the grave. A please note here, please, I am not saying God will not or does not miraculously heal people of their physical ailments today. Miraculous healings are not normative, but they do happen. If you're sick, ask God to heal you. If it's His will for your life, He will heal you. Normally, through processes of nature that He created and medical science, which He's also responsible for, but possibly 
through a miracle. Anyway, the God of Kenneth Copeland used faith like a tool to create the world. This is Kenneth Copeland's God. Kenneth Copeland's God imparts this same force of faith to all who are born again, thereby creating many new creative gods able to bring about their own wills. This God and His Son that allows people with their finite points of view and still subject to their fleshy sin nature, their temporary nature, it allows them to command the universe with their tongues. That is a false God. I refer to him as the God of the Christian Jedi. The God of the Bible created the world out of sterile nothingness, out of a void of any substance. God created it in the absence of belief because his own being was the only thing to be believed in. God does not have anyone or thing to put faith in. He simply is. He simply does by his inherent power. He sees all. And when he speaks, it's by his inherent power, which is a part of him, that anything is created. There's a concept known as seed faith. Well, that concept is at the core of what the late Oral Roberts taught regarding faith. Oral Roberts, who lived from 1918 to 2009, was considered the godfather of the charismatic movement as was one of the most recognized preachers throughout the world. He was the founder of Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oral's son, Richard Roberts, continues to teach the concept of seed faith. According to an article by Oral Roberts called Key to Seed Faith Teaching, I'm going to quote this, When we put our faith in God's hands like a seed we plant, we're giving God something to work with, and He will send the miracle we need. No matter how small our faith seems to be, it will meet needs and solve problems that appear as impossible to move as mountains. This is because each act of faith is a seed planted and will be multiplied many times over. So, according to the feed, the seed faith formula for manipulating God to give us whatever we need, one must only, number one, recognize that God is our source. Number two, give first so that it may be given to us. And number three, expect a miracle. According to this teaching, one must activate their belief that God is the source of everything. One does this by putting that faith into action by planting seeds of faith for whatever the crop one needs to reap. Do they need more money? Then the proper seed to plant is money, since according to the teaching, everything reproduces after its kind. But rather than investing in the stock market, they need to give their money to God. Oral Roberts Ministries is one of many ministries that will be happy to take your money on behalf of God. Of course, you can give money also if you need physical healing. As it turns out, giving money is the important thing. It lets God know that one trusts Him and is thankful for what He's done for him or her and what one expects Him to do. Seed faith teaching turns faith into something far different than biblical belief. 
It even goes beyond saying that true belief requires an appropriate response to what it is that one believes in. It turns faith into a mystical multiplication power or force. It's this multiplication force of one's faith that causes God to act. It manipulates God. By you doing X, it will cause God to do Y, but ten times over in return. Congratulations, you've just learned how to control the God of the universe. However, it's not the God of the universe you're attempting to control. It's the false God of the Christian Jedi. He is a God like a genie in a bottle that can be manipulated. He is yet another God that Jesus has came to free us from. You've heard the term leap of faith. Taking a leap or step of faith means that one will do something even though they are not completely sure it's the right thing to do or if it'll even succeed. It means to do something outside of the bounds of reason. Taking a leap of faith means to take an action despite the odds, lack of information, and lack of planning. Depending how unsure one is of what it is they're considering doing and how much is at risk determines whether it's a leap of faith or only a step of faith. (laughs) If one is saying they're taking a leap or step of faith, in a Christian context, they're making a wish that God will honor their demonstration of belief. They're moving ahead down a road that they're not sure of. They're acknowledging that they're pretty sure of God's existence and, and wishful that He'll take care of them by granting His or her wish. If you could hear him think, it'd probably be like, I just believe this is the right thing to do because I have faith. As though having faith is a mystical ability to believe in something without any basis. There is no such thing as a biblical leap of faith in this sense. Biblical belief or faith does not require one to blindly step into the unknown and rely on the X factor. Rather, taking a biblical step of faith means that she or he knows what will happen as a result of his or her actions. They can know this based on the evidence and substance they've gathered and placed their confidence and trust in, primarily Jesus and his word. A reputable bank will not loan money to someone they think that will not pay the money back. Before they give a loan to someone, they'll run a credit check on them. They may do some sort of a background investigation, ask for collateral, and do an appraisal. It's only after they've tested and proven to themselves that they can have confidence in the person seeking the loan and that they'll pay it back that they will take a step of faith and loan the money. This is similar to how biblical faith works. Of course, banks make mistakes with who they place their trust in. But the trust of the authentic child of God is placed in Jesus and His Word. There is none more trustworthy than Jesus. Authentic faith is synonymous with authentic belief. As I already pointed out, although today we may think of belief and faith being two different things, there is no biblical difference. 
Let's talk about quantities of faith. If there are not different amounts of faith, as one might typically think of it based on the modern misuse of the term, how do we account for Jesus using the phrase, you of little faith? He does it several times. How do we account for that as recorded in Scripture? Because of our modern idea of what faith is, it may be easier to understand the answer to this question if we retranslate the statement to say, you of little belief. Remember, same word. Although belief is an on-off type decision switch, belief is only possible because of what we know and understand. You can only believe the basic gospel because you acquired the knowledge of it and you understood it. You obtained your first measure of knowledge and understanding. In this way, belief is quantifiable. Prior to the point you had an authentic belief in the gospel, you may have had misconceptions regarding it based on a lack of knowledge and understanding, a lack of faith. At that time, you had no or zero amount of authentic belief. Your quantity of faith was zero. Then, having acquired knowledge and understanding of the very basic gospel, you might say that you had the belief of a mustard seed. Based on the level of your knowledge and understanding, you were one of little faith. As an authentic child of God continues to mature and seek authentic truth, they'll continue to build their knowledge and understanding base. The amount of authentic truth they come to learn, understand, and embrace, and act on, will cause their authentic beliefs to grow. In this way, they have more belief, more pistos, and that equals more faith. To have more belief or more faith is to say that one has a deeper or more complete knowledge and understanding of authentic truth. A mature believer with the deep understanding of many things could be said to have great faith. So, to retranslate and paraphrase what Jesus was saying to his disciples when he referred to them as being ones of little faith, he was saying, quote, you of limited knowledge and understanding about who I really am, unquote. Someone might be tempted to equate an authentic child of God going through life increasing their knowledge and understanding of the authentic truth and appropriately responding to it with the doctrine of sanctification. Remember, sanctification is said to be the process that occurs after one becomes justified. These are all theological terms. Justified, born again, destined for eternal life, and declared to be righteous. The doctrine of sanctification says that a Christian will become increasingly holy or sanctified until the day that they die or Jesus returns, whichever comes first. It's equated with becoming conformed into the image of Christ. You can read about that in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. This increase in holiness is almost always related to increased adherence to biblically-based moral code, the law. It's expected that through the process of sanctification, or becoming more holy, that one will sin less 
and less till they don't sin anymore. The nexus between gaining a greater knowledge and understanding of the authentic truth and the process of sanctification, becoming more holy, sinning less, is that once an authentic child of God is authentic truth revealed to them, they will attempt to adopt it into his or her life. Sometimes that may mean that they adopt a behavior that appears to some as more closely resembling the moral code they believe must be adhered to, to be holy. However, this is to completely misunderstand and misuse the word holy. To be holy or sanctified in the objective sense simply means to be set apart. It's God that does the setting apart when one is declared to be righteous by accepting what Jesus accomplished on her or his behalf. It's not the believer that sets themselves apart for God little by little throughout their lifetime, as they have the ability. God does not allow anyone who is purchased with the blood of his son, Jesus, to remain partially under the authority of Satan. They're entirely and instantly, at the point of salvation, completely set apart, made holy, sanctified for the kingdom of God. Because of having more knowledge and better understanding of the authentic truth that's found in Scripture, I may change my behavior in such a way that might appear to conflict with some people's idea of what they think it means to be holy. For example, rather than swearing off alcohol, I may come to realize that it's okay to drink in moderation. I still may not do so because I don't like the taste or for some other reason, like I need to be the loving person and not do the unloving thing by drinking around an alcoholic. But I will no longer say it conflicts with being an authentic child of God, like I might have once done living under a legalistic religious paradigm. As my knowledge and understanding of Scripture increases, and I come to realize that a popular, well-attended church is teaching and promoting false doctrine, I might appear completely unsanctified and even rebellious and divisive when I stopped attending. In fact, I may come to view what church really is supposed to be is almost nothing like what most view it today as. As I point out every now and then, that's the topic of my most recent book that I'm working on, currently in the editing phase of it. As I continue to study and understand scripture, I may refuse to participate any longer in what some call spreading the gospel. When it's been revealed that it is the gospel of a not quite Jesus that's being marketed, I may come to understand good works completely differently than what many in today's churches do, and I may not participate in their organized efforts any longer. Those who are around, if I make such decisions, who are taking note of my behaviors, if they're at a different part of their journey with Jesus, they may believe I'm going in the opposite direction of holiness. In summary, the words belief, faith, and hope, and I could add holiness, have evolved over the centuries. Crossing through cultural and language barriers, how the words are used and their meanings have changed. 
Much of today's church culture is based on erroneous uses of these words. The Greek word pistos means one thing, to be convinced that something is true. It's better translated in our culture today as belief. However, the word is also translated as faith. The modern usage of the word faith has taken on somewhat of a mystical meaning that's used in support of many incorrect teachings. It means to continue to believe something despite any proof or good reason to do so. Many Christian false gods rely upon this teaching. The idea of taking a leap or step of faith, as the term is used today, is unbiblical. Hope is another English word that's lost its original meaning in Scripture. Today, to hope means little more than to make a wish or express a desire. Yet, as used in the Bible, it means to have a realistic and confident expectation that something will occur. To biblically believe means to have knowledge and understanding of something. Having greater faith or belief means to have acquired more knowledge and understanding. Having faith of a mustard seed therefore means to have acquired little knowledge and understanding of the gospel, as opposed to having great faith, which means the opposite. Authentic faith or authentic belief is solely reliant on basing one's belief on authentic truth. The Apostle Paul had much to say about the worship of false gods. In the next episode of this series titled, Choose Your Jesus Wisely, we'll explore what Paul had to say to the followers of Jesus who lived in the region of Galatia on this topic. But until then, listen closely, it's my desire, my wish, and my prayer that you be blessed richly by God. Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.